So this morning we're kind of staying in a place where I'm actually really happy that we're staying within. It was so maybe four Sundays ago now, I can't keep track, that we looked at God instructing Israel this holy moment when they made a covenant with him. It was called a theophany. And these are unique and special moments. One of the most holy moments in the whole of the Old Testament occurs. And we, we get the privilege of exploring that as we look into verses such as those. And one of the things that really struck me was God's instruction, do not touch the mountain. That was his instruction to the people of Israel. For if you touch the mountain, the person must be put to death. And, and I don't know about yourselves, but for me, I'm kind of like, oh, that's, that's a bit harsh. That's a bit, I mean, can, you, can you not just like go away for a wee while even and then come back? But the, the, the severity of the, the, the holy and the unholy coming together was that that was what God had said had to be the result. And as I was preparing that sermon, one of the, the verses for today that came up was from Hebrews chapter 4, and it was verse 16. Therefore we can go boldly with confidence into the throne room of God. And that just totally amazed me. There was the people of Israel told, don't touch the mountain. And here's the people in Jesus Christ told, you can go boldly with confidence into the throne room of God himself. Now why is that? Is it because God is suddenly chilled now and he's not, and, and sin and unholiness aren't such a big deal? No. It's because of the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished. And that in him, we are made righteous, we are made children of God, those that absurdly says can go with confidence into the throne room of God. And I wonder if we feel that this morning. Do we feel that we could with confidence go into the throne room of God? Because that's what the Bible says. And it says it not because we've had a fantastic week or because our personalities are awesome or anything like that, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for each of us. And, and, and that spoke to me so much that what God is seeking for us to become is a holy people, a people that recognize what, what he has done for us and, and live in the reality of that. Uh, when I last preached, we preached on Psalm 139, and we're moving on a little bit from that, and I wasn't too sure I actually wanted to move on from that, and somebody pulled me to the side and says, you know, you can take a wee break of, of your series over the summer, because after all, everyone's drifting in and out. And I thought, what a great idea that is. So now I can sit within some of this stuff and let us just ruminate over it and explore it a little bit. What does it mean for us to be the holy people of God? What makes us distinct? Because that fascinates me actually, because we think about holiness and it's so abstract that often we don't actually have much an idea as to what it means. What does it mean to walk through the street as a holy person? Now, we may all come up with different images of what that means. <laughs> Quite a lot of them will probably be wrong. But ultimately, it means that we walk through the street and live and respond and act in the exact same way that Jesus would have. That is ultimately what it all boils down to. 
So what I've been ruminating with, what's been playing in my mind is what makes a Christian different from those around them? What makes the beat that we walk to different to the beat that everyone else walks to? What makes us distinct? In other words, what makes us holy? What makes us set apart for God and His ways and His purposes? And we, of course, we might say, what makes a Christian different? Well, we are are forgiven. We are reconciled and hallelujah to that. But what I'm really interested in is the difference that that makes as we walk through today, as we walk through tomorrow, as we go into our workplaces, as we go to see our families and our friends. What makes that different? And it's an important question for us to ask because in lots of ways Christians aren't distinct enough these days. We adopt a lot of what our world tells us. Well, of course we do, without deeply questioning it. But God calls us to something other, to belong to him, to be like him, to be like his son. So this morning I want us to look at these challenging words of Jesus. And I would argue actually that what makes us different, what makes that beat different isn't our intelligence as good and as great as that might be. It isn't our intelligence that makes us different. It isn't even our wisdom or our discipline. All these things are great. But I think what makes us ultimately distinct is where our hearts lay. Beyond everything else. This is what God is looking for from us. It's what God was looking for from Israel as well. He didn't want a list of do's and don'ts. He wanted a people that remembered what he had done, responded to that, got to know him and loved him. But it became something other. And the risk is it does the exact same in our lives as well. Righteousness becomes what we do, not what we've gained in Jesus Christ. And that disconnect grows with a God that just wants us to know him, to walk with him, to live with him and to love him. Living that out, that's what makes us distinct. This is why Jesus makes it the first and greatest commandment. This was the first and greatest commandment in his life. He's not setting a standard for us that he himself didn't embrace in his life. So I want us to have a little look at why this makes us distinct. Now the first thing to know is that this is actually part of the Shema that Jesus quotes here. Now the Shema is in Deuteronomy. It is some of the most significant verses in the Hebrew faith. I've gone past Deuteronomy. Let's try that again. Here we go. In Deuteronomy 6, we... God gives them what's called the Shema, which is verses 4 to 9, where he says to, the, to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these are the words that I command you t- today that shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets to your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. <laughs> the message was cited twice a day by pious Jews. Love the Lord your God. The most important thing that God wanted from Israelites as given to them in these verses was love the Lord 
your God. God was looking for a heart response from them. And Jesus transfers us across. And this answer would have been extremely pleasing to the people around him. Because this would have been their understanding. But of course Jesus begins to apply this in different ways. And in other Gospels they try to challenge and deconstruct it in different ways. Which we're going to look at in coming weeks as well. So I want us just to begin to explore this verse a little bit. So shall... That's the first thing. I've tried to build it and make the text a bit bigger because I've been told that it's been tiny and you need a magnifying glass to see it. So hopefully it's a bit better this time. Now, shall, this is, this is a command that Jesus has given them. You know, like, what's that famous saying? You shall go to the dance. That's from one of those Disney films. I don't know which one it is. But you shall go to the dance is the statement. Is it Cinderella? Yeah, yeah there we go. I know something about Disney after all. It's not a case of you might go, if all things considering work out well and everything is in your favour, it's you shall go. There's a command, there's an authority to that. Or for instance, if we might say, you shall go and tidy your room. Yeah, there's still a chance it's not going to happen. But the, the intent is there that we are telling a command, a, a, an instruction, this is what you shall do. What Jesus is saying here isn't like some sort of like idea. This might be a good idea for your life. How about we think about this and a wee reflection about it? If it seems like a good idea, how about we try and see how it goes? And if it doesn't work out well, then I'll let it go. It's, yeah, you've given it a try and it's all good. It's, 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 he's saying you shall, and he, and he backs it up in the verses as well. Verse 38, this is the great and the first commandment. It's the great commandment and it's the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. It's not a request, Jesus here is saying at the core to everything, to that faith, to perfection, to even righteousness itself is a life that's lived in the love of God. Well, maybe I'll give it a go. It's a fundamental. You shall. So what Jesus is firstly telling the people is this is a command. This is vital. This is important. This is great. The first great commandment. This is core to everything. This was core to Jesus. And he wants it to be core to his people as well. So you shall love. Love. And I wonder what the word, the Greek word which Jesus was maybe using for, for um, love here. I was kind of hoping it may have been philo. Because philo is just an, an affection and it's, it's a bit easier. But it's not. It's agape that Jesus uses here. Agape is, a, is, a, is the kind of love that's unconditional. I guess for us, probably the nearest we would have it is to our children. Especially when they're newborn and they can't talk back and give us cheek. There's that unconditional kind of love at that moment. It's, it's awe-inspiring. It's, it's amazing. It's life-defining. It changes everything about us and it helps us endure the sleepless nights that come night after night after night. It's a love that redefines everything. So it's a love that we are, that God is calling out of us that is, that is unconditional towards him. So it's not out of what we get out of God. He reveals himself often through those things. God's desire is that our love towards him moves beyond that, what we get, what we benefit from him. And that our love towards him becomes an experience, an understanding of who he is. When, when I was studying at the, the Baptist College, one of the, the things we have to do, which was such fun, was a dissertation. Yeah, I think it was 10,000 words. 
10,000 words. Some people here will be thinking, that's pretty small for a dissertation. It's not, right? It's huge, okay? I went through the experience. But I, I wrote my dissertation on the book of Job. Now, why I did that, I, I, I'm not entirely sure. But that's what I wrote my dissertation on. And actually, it turned out to be a really interesting read, a really interesting exploration into not just Job and the events that happened there, but also into humanity itself. And Job is written for a few different different reasons. Um, one of the things it's doing is it's challenging a, a wisdom theology that had become so prominent in the time it was written. So in other words, if you sin, you suffer. And if you don't sin, you don't suffer. So because Job was suffering, he had therefore sinned. And this is what you see in the engagement with him and his three inverted commas friends. Um, if you have friends like that, you need to find other ones. Okay? Because they were convinced that that was the case and they put him through absolute torture to try and prove that they themselves were right. But one of the other core things that's going on in the book is this interaction between God and the tempter or Satan. And you see that um, Job is, is cast as this great person. And I'll just read Job 1 verse 8. It says, And the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none on the earth like him, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now that bla word blameless is stressing the fact that he hasn't sinned. Okay? That's what that word blameless in Hebrew means. And it's stressed for that reason. And Satan answers him, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed him and the works of his hands and the possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. This is Job, this is Satan's response to, to what is happening in, in, in this narrative here. And ultimately what's going on there is the, the core here is the accusation that human beings are simply hedonists. We will walk with God as long as we get good things out of it. And as soon as that's not the case, then we would curse him to his face. And another way you could say what is at core here is agape love. It's Job with God and living for God simply because he has all this amazing stuff. Or is it because he actually loves God? So I'm sure we're all familiar with this story. It is put to test in the most brutal fashion. First Job loses absolutely everything he has. I don't know about you, but that sounds utterly devastating. But he refuses to curse God. And then his health goes in the most unpleasant kind of ways, and yet he still refuses to curse God. And then, and maybe the most challenging of them all, he has this unrelenting conversation with these friends that are trying to tell him, you have sinned. And if he says, yes, I've sinned, he would lie, he would break his integrity, and he would prove that actually, to end his suffering, he would be willing to lie. And show that actually, that integrity with God isn't so important. But he doesn't do that. He argues and argues and argues and argues and argues and chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And then another friend joins in and it goes on and on. And eventually God joins in. And Job is vindicated. And the friends have to ask Job for forgiveness. 
But at the core of that is that same thing. That question, is our faith one which is built on what we can get out of it? Or is it built on the one that we know through it? And that's a really important distinction between the two because one of them spurs us towards that agape love and the other takes us in a direction that when the hard times come, we are at risk of turning on God. So we have to love him, the agape love, your, this is personal, your God. One we know. God is not an abstract, he's not distant or unknown, he is your God. Our God. One that is known. One that aims to reveal himself to each and every one of us. And then of course we get the three statements which in Matthew are our heart, our soul and our mind. Now I'm not going to spend too much time on those because the three actually overlap and the intent behind the three is more uh, holistic. Everything that we are is to love God. But I want us just to have a wee look at them very briefly because they do challenge us somewhat in how we are living and relating to God. So we're told it's to be all our heart. Now the Hebrew there is literally a blood pump. But much like ourselves, they, un- they understood or they had this idea of the heart that it is something far more than that. And we still have that today. So for instance, if you say to your spouse or to your partner, I love you with all my blood pump. You're, not, you're, you're going to get a very interesting response. Maybe they're even backing away very slowly. But if you were to say to them, I love you with all of my heart, you might say, oh, that's lovely. Or they might say, toughen up. Depends who your partner is, I guess. But we still have that idea that the heart is something more than just a simple pump that's pumping around all the blood. And science is still wrestling with that today. There is evidence that shows it is something more than that. But it's considered the seat of impulse, of feeling, of affection. And it still has those kind of connotations today. But our heart, all of that stuff is to be for God. And that's quite a challenge. Because there's so much that can distract us. So much that can pull us away from that. So much other things that can absorb our whole heart as well. So to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and that overlaps quite strongly with heart, but it's also got connotations of breath of life. The life that we have. It's a life given for God. In our minds, our intellects, our imaginations, is to be for God as well. They all overlap. But what's actually important is that word all. All of one's being. It's William Barclay that says, it must be a love that dominates our emotions, directs our thoughts, and is the dynamic of all our actions. A love which dominates our emotions, directs our thoughts, and is the dynamic of all of our actions. That's the kind of love that God desires and is seeking to call into being in each of our hearts towards him. 
us are wrestled with that question. How does that make us a distinct people? How does it make us distinct as we wrestle with these things and as we ponder them and as we seek to apply what was such an important part of Jesus' life and make it an important part of ours? Well, it gives us a different focus, that call to love God with all of who we are. As I've said, there's so much distractions around us, so much that can pull us away. We're bombarded with all sorts of things all the time. And yet we've got this call to try and love God in this pure way that Jesus speaks of in these verses, to have our hearts directed towards him. That means seeking to make time for him. And at times that's a discipline. I wonder how many of us have that situation where we decide we're, we're, we're going to get up and study the Bible or pray and we give ourselves half an hour and for 25 minutes we do lots of other things and then say a quick prayer at the end. Lots of different things can pull us away and begin to distract us. But we have to seek to make time for him, to get to know him, to have that different focus in our lives. And I believe it gives us a different energy as well. Because our heart ought to lay somewhere unique. To lay somewhere heavenly, somewhere divine. To be focused on God himself. And I do think that that makes us walk to that other beat. Because to love God with all our heart doesn't mean that we ignore everything else. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean, for instance, I'm loving God with all my heart, so I can't love you, there's no room. No. Because if we are loving God with all our heart, our heart, or seeking to do that, we're walking in step with what Jesus did. And what we learn from Jesus is when a heart is focused towards God, there's plenty of room for others perhaps more than what we have just now. So we have to seek to love him. Have you ever heard that phrase, being on fire for God? I remember that when I first became a Christian, that was something that people said, and I didn't really understand it at first. They said, you're on fire for God, and I'm looking at where? It's of course... New Christian, not normal jargon. Um, but there are times when I think we experience this, those special moments when our connection to God and our heart is lying in those places. And we feel that fire, that energy of knowing God, of loving God. And we feel it flow through us and direct us and define how we're seeing things around us. But yet so often it's fleeting. Maybe a week or two. And it begins to dissipate. And perhaps that is part of the normal ebb and flow of our Christian walk. At times we're going to be up high and feel everything is awesome and God is great and mighty and I'm on fire. And other times we're going to be a bit like... 
tired of being bothered. I'm tired. I don't know where God is in this situation. You go through those moments. So what verses like these tell us is that God is calling us and encouraging us to that experience. Because it's that experience that helps us, guides us through complex things, excuse me, and gives us that different ethic. An ethic that's more like Jesus. Sees things more like he does. And realises and knows the priorities of God in a more natural kind of way than if, all, if, if, if so much of it is forced and just coming from our memories. We want it to be coming from our hearts and our experience of God. It gives us a different energy and I do believe that that gives us a different response as well when troubles come. Can we keep our eyes fixed on God? It's one of the tragic and rather naff things about life. I know I can say the word naff, that's a safe word to say. Is that troubles come. We can't avoid them. They will find us even if we do our best. They're still going to arrive at our door. Can we keep our hearts fixed on God in the midst of those? Well, a big part of the answer to that is how much we perceive his love for us and how much we've responded to that with our love towards him. What about when cultural issues rage? Can we draw on that love of God? My goodness, for us, this is an important question. Because cultural issues rage everywhere today. Can we draw on that love of God and let that define how we see the issues of our day? I think it's important that we do. It gives us a distinctiveness. It sets us to a different beat because that which is captivating, captivating our heart ultimately is God. It's not our careers, our, our workplaces, or our ambitions to be the best at something, our hobbies, our families. And these things are all well and important, and especially our families are a gift from God, and don't ever think anything other. But for those things to thrive and for us to be the kind of person that will enable those things to thrive, we have to first belong to God. We draw strength from there. We draw focus from there. And actually, we're created to dwell there. So when we hear this statement of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all, how much of that is our reality here this morning? Where are our hearts before God this morning? The call of Jesus here is one that we so often hear, but we know if we're honest, we don't always hit that mark. We're often distracted. There is often so much things going on around us. And if it, we're honest, at times, we are actually quite lukewarm. Things are so busy and so hectic that keeping priority on this stuff, before you know it, a whole week or even a month could have passed pace of life that we live in today, it's really important that we make space to prioritize these things. Because the reality is, God calls us to something special. 
something unique, something life-transforming. Because verses such as these are exciting because we see that, that God is calling us to something profound, something special, a relationship with Him that will captivate our hearts and redefine things in remarkable and vital ways. But they can equally be frustrating because we know in our hearts sometimes that we're not near that experience. There are so many things going on that actually we're struggling to see and connect to God in the midst of them. And that can then make us feel guilty and we can sometimes do the opposite. We can draw back and think, how can I do this? I've got too much going on. I'm just going to step back from God for a little while and prioritize this other stuff. And worse still, we can have the enemy that will get stuck into all of this as well. That will batter us with accusation after accusation after accusation and distraction after distraction after distraction. And we might not know our left from our right and our up from our down. And then we hear a verse such as this and we think, oh, my goodness me, does God not know what's going on in my life? I want to say that our response to this verse shouldn't be one of guilt. It shouldn't be one of anxiety. It shouldn't be one which encourages us to draw back from God. This call that he places on our life is one that we can receive with joy. One that we can hear and embrace without having to listen to the accusations of the enemy. And we can do that because we know what God has done for us and because Jesus teaches us who God is like as well. I want to read as we begin to close this morning the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm reading from Luke 15 verses 1 to 32 and it says this. And he says to them, there was a man that had two sons and the younger says to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered it and property and sorry squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. And I'm going to stop there. This is a portrait of our God, your God, my God, this morning. One who, regardless of where our hearts may lie, we can know for certainty 
that if we respond to him, his arms are outstretched. But all it takes is the slightest glimpse of us saying, Father, and he comes towards us. We can hear verses such as what Jesus is saying there and we can receive them with joy and let them inspire us because we know that even though we fail, even though so much pulls us away, those verses are there as an anchor so that we get these moments to reflect. And as we do so, we're reminded that our God is the God of the prodigals. The God who takes those that are messed up even squandered all their living, as it says in these verses. And let's remember, pigs were vile. What he was doing was the most degrading and the humiliating things possible. And still welcomes them and embraces them. So for each of us this morning, our faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of where our hearts may lie, we have the opportunity to turn to God and say, help me do this, and know for absolute certainty that he rejoices and calls us his son and calls us his daughter and embraces us. This is a God we don't need to shrink back from. This is a God we don't need to hide from. This is a God that we can go towards, move towards, live for, and love because of the amazing things that he has done for each and every one of us. So let's not let guilt be an excuse or failure be an excuse or let anything else be an excuse. But hear the word of God which says to us, and I close with this, you are my child, and I welcome you. Let's pray. Father, we lay our hearts bare before you now and we can do this knowing that you are the God of the prodigals. You know where we are this morning. You know where our hearts are. You know where the distractions are. You know if our hearts are cluttered with idols. You know whether we are on fire for you or whether we are as distant as we have ever been. And yet, we are reminded as well this call to love you with everything that we are. But this is something that should inspire us because you are a God of the prodigals. A God that for each of us has his arms outstretched. So it's our prayer this morning, God, as we hear the words of Jesus and as we seek to live them out in our lives, that we would experience your embrace. That we would know your presence and your welcome. That we are your children. And that you rejoice as we seek to draw near to you. You don't step back from us, but you move out to meet us. And we thank you so much for that. Because we know we struggle, Lord. We know life can be hard. We know we get distracted. And we know that because Jesus was tempted in every way, you have an understanding of those things. But yet, he succeeded where we struggle, Father. We ask your forgiveness for that. But we pray above all that we would experience and sense your embrace this morning. So bless us, Father. Embrace us and help us that as we hear these words of Jesus and seek to be that distinct people that live for you, to know that you are the God of the prodigals, that you are our God, and that we love because you first loved us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could invite our musicians forward, we're going to close our service together this morning. We're saying a song, it's come thou fount of every blessing, but it's got that lyric that says, Tune my heart to sing your praise.
Maybe that's what some of us need this morning, just that, that thing to say to God, tune my heart, Lord, to sing your praise. Tune my heart to live for you and to love you.